Hey, I'm Michael Dorinda. And I'm Jake Bennett. And welcome to episode 144 of the North Meet South web podcast. Welcome. Nice. That was welcome, a good one. Welcome. welcome. Hey, what were you doing now? You said you were under your desk. What were you doing? I was I was under my desk. So I got a new monitor last week. It looks week. beautiful. The I Samsung saw you sent the picture. Yeah. 49 inch. 49. Holy wide. cow. I think it's um, massive. It is the size of my desk, essentially. That's really um, well, job. diagonally in the corner. Um, but as as part of doing that, I had to shuffle some things around. So before I had like a 34-inch ultra-wide and then I had my my Elgato mic was like to the side. And then someone said to me, you should try having two monitors. So I rustled up my old 25-inch um, Dell and so it was kind of like sat there. So if I wanted to get my microphone out for recording i had to like move the smaller screen yeah, and then like yeah, yeah. wiggle it around Not so fun. when i got this new display there was no room for my imac which has been a glorified paperweight for the last three years mm-hmm. so i took that off my desk and now my monitor sits to the left but i haven't actually used the microphone since i set the desk up nice. so when i no, was first swung time. it out i realized that i hadn't i hadn't actually tightened it so i was under my desk when you called trying to quickly tighten it up so your desk looks really nice on the desk while we were recording looks really nice the desk yeah the desk is a good one i am well i mean it's been cleaned because i had to move things around Mm -hmm. so Mm -hmm. i want to get i want to get like one of those monitorizers you know you you see the desk set up pictures online and they always look really nice it's like three pieces of timber right it's a shelf Mm -hmm. and two little leggies Mm -hmm. and i'm looking for these things and for some reason this small amount of timber costs like two hundred dollars no you're gonna make it i don't understand you're gonna make it and I'm like, oh, it can't be that hard, it's right? Not. It's just a bit of wood glue it's and some nails. It's not that hard. It's not even wood fine. glue. Not even wood glue. The uh, let's see here, what's the guy's name? Um, somebody who's just a Ugmonk. Heard of Ugmonk before? Ugmonk. Okay. No. U G M O N K. You have to remember, Ugg-monk I don't do anything by myself, right? Monitor stand. Well, the Ugmonk guy is somebody. Somebody was just recently talking about him. I've been following the Ugmonk dude for like forever, and this is his stand. Uh, it is at ugmonk.com slash blog slash journal slash my DIY monitor stand because in his office setup, he's had this in his mm-hmm. like, he did like an office review probably like 10 years ago, like his his setup review and yeah. everybody loved it because it's really minimalist and it's just gorgeous. And so one of the things that people asked him for the longest time was, what's that monitor stand? How did you make that? Well, all it is, is just an Ikea set of legs. There's four Ikea legs. Mm-hmm. And then a piece of wood, which is stained with Danish oil. That's it. It's literally just just mm. put some Danish oil on it and that's it. Sand it, Danish oil. There you go. And they put some wax on it, I guess, as well. So then you put the legs on it and there you go. That's it. So it's really, really very simple. Uh, but it looks nice. And it's exactly mm. kind of like what you're after. So it's a piece of wood, four yeah. metal legs, and you're done. So really, really simple. Got it. Yeah. Yep. So that would be a nice little fun project for you. And it would be a lot less than $300, which I think is what the ones you said you were no, looking at. No were. doubt. Yeah. 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 This yeah. would be a good thing to cut your teeth on. You know what I mean? You're a uh, little, uh, you'd become a, a woodworker. Just call like Jason Beggs and, yeah. and uh, J-Mac and uh, what's his name? Uh, Jesse Shutt. Get those guys on the fo- on the horn mm-hmm. and, and uh, ask them any questions you have about creating a DIY monitor stand. Yeah, pretty cool. Very cool. Huh. Yeah. Interesting. Check I could out. even just buy, you know, and look, me being the lazy person that I am with this kind of stuff, I could even just buy the worktop. 
like the wood ready to go from Ikea and then just cut it. You probably could. You probably could. Yeah, I don't know. It's like, yeah, you probably could. You probably could. They, they, I'm sure they probably, sell. Probably a bit too big. Yeah. They'll probably, they'll probably have Ikea. I've got one that's like six feet. Six six feet, which is probably too big for what I want. But mm-hmm. um, yeah, I'll, I'm sure yeah, that's the nice thing out. about something like this is you could make it whatever size you want, right? If you cut it right. So like for you, actually, it would be kind of cool mm. if you put it in the corner. So you could like angle the corners of it. You know what I mean? So it, so yeah. it wasn't sort yeah. of... Uh, you know, you could angle Hang it kind of fit with your desk. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah, yeah man. You could do it. Yeah. You got this. I believe in you. Hmm. There you go. Here's a decorative storage shelf in walnut, which is the, the color of uh, the desk that I have here. This is probably a bit thick, mind you. How thick is that? 38 mil, 1200, 240. Well, that's, yeah, okay. So we're looking at $40 for the piece of, uh, like it's a floating shelf. So I assume it's, it's not actually solid. Right. That's the only deal with those sorts of things, right? Is it's like, that's like a chip wood, but I don't, so like whatever. Right. But I don't, I don't, like it just needs to look nice. I yeah. don't need to put anything on it, really. I'm just going to put my, my HomePod minis, you know, one on either side. Sure. And it's, it's just so that like, I've got, I've got the DBX and the, the Scarlet kind of just sat on the desk there. And then I've got the camera, like the tripod. Yeah on top of that. So it'd be nice to kind of, cause then I could just like push some stuff back under there out of the way. Yeah, for sure. Mm, lots of maybe, options here. Maybe not this weekend. Cause I got lots of stuff on, but uh, maybe, maybe next weekend there you I go. could give this a crack. And I, and I just need to like cut it on an angle to match the desk. You got and it. then I could put it exactly where I want it. Exactly. And Do you have a miter saw? Probably mm, not. Okay. No, not at all. Okay. But, but you uh, could you get yeah. a miter box and a little handsaw would work fine too. So fine. No big deal. You could. That's good to me. Yep. Look at that. No big deal. There you go. Problem solved. Problem solved, people. And right now, I am doing drywall, and I have no idea what I I'm guess. doing. How is still? How's again. the uh, the bathroom oh, Reno going? No, it's going. I uh, it's 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 going. It's fine. I I just got so tonight I was cutting drywall, and I don't have a T square, which is like this big this big thing that goes across your drywall, so you can cut it straight. And I don't have one, so I'm just mm-hmm. using like a long level that I have, but it's not going very well. So I'm like. Right. I have like a drywall that is cut in like a couple of different angles. And so I have to use like a drywall rasp to get it to fit in. And then I've got to screw it in. And I've got, it's, it's a, it's a bit of a project. It's fine. It's fine. It all covers up with mud mm-hmm. and whatever, and it'll be okay. But I'm a bit of a perfectionist. And so it always takes me way too long to do this stuff, but <laughs> all the plumbing is in the shower is in the tile is done. So I'm onto the last steps, which is just drywall. So it's, I say dry, I say last steps drywall, Mud, sand, mud, sand, mud, sand, prime, paint, baseboards, reinstall the toilet, and I have till Thursday. Mm-hmm. So <laughs> a little bit behind. Because this is this is when your visitors are coming. Yes, right? exactly they're, right. They're coming for a wedding. That's correct. Oh, they're just yep. coming for fun. They're just coming for just to hang out and have fun. So yeah, no, it should be fun. Mm-hmm. Oh, also, hey, check this out. So I got this is Rivian. Do you know what Rivian is? Anybody know what Rivian is? The yeah, the electric electric car, right? Yeah, trucks. Truck. They like make these trucks. Yeah. And so yep. they're right in town mm-hmm. here. They have like a big manufacturing facility here. And so they had like a silent auction at a uh at a school event the other day uh for my kids or whatever. Mm-hmm. And I bid on both of the different items that they had Rivian stuff for, and I won both of them. It was hilarious. I didn't mean to. But I got some cool little stuff from them and uh 
I don't know. It's just kind of cool. They got like these neat water bottles and stuff. I don't know. I was I was looking at your Tesla water bottle you had on yours, and I was like, oh, I just got a Rivian water bottle. I don't have, mind you, I don't have mm-hmm. the truck. I just have the water bottle. <laughs> <laughs> but I get to go like tour the steps. yeah. I get to go tour their facilities. Uh, that was part of the package that you got to win. So that was kind of cool. So I'll get mm-hmm. to go tour their uh, their plant, which will be kind of cool. So. Anyway, none of that has to anything to do with what we're going to talk about today because um, I am on a little bit of it. I'm not a I'm not a dry spell. I, I could figure out some pretty cool stuff to talk about, I think. But uh, before I jump in, I want to give you a chance to talk about anything you want to talk about. You said earlier today that your team sort of made the decision to go away from an inertia architecture and instead do like a microservices sort of architecture or something where you guys are going to be doing some front end stuff. I don't know. Yeah. So explain that okay, to me a little so bit more because I didn't really understand exactly what you were saying. Maybe you can explain it better. I will caveat all of this explanation with I don't really understand what's happening either. But I was talking to Daniel Colborn earlier okay. and uh, he he seemed to know what I was talking about. Okay. So over the last six or so months, let me wind back. Our application at the moment. And, for those and, of hold you on. Who don't know, Why would Daniel Colborn know? Is he working on stuff with you guys? No. Oh. But he's worked in the in the in the space. Okay. So okay. I was just, you know, complaining to him about it. So our application that we have now is a is a JSON API, a Laravel powered JSON API on the back end with a view Nuxt front end. Okay. Can you um and give me a real quick Nuxt is Next, but the view version of it, right? Because next is yeah. React yeah, so and Nuxt is view. And tell me real yeah. quickly, like, give me the pitch for Nuxt. What is Nuxt? Is it sort of uh, like the Folio Laravel it, stuff? It allows, yeah, Nuxt, Nuxt allows you to build like a single page application, but it does all of the routing and all of the authentication and, and the request, you know, back and forth between the, the back end for you. And this was, you know, we had we had discrete backend and frontend teams. So that was built off and it was always a challenge, you know, building stuff because you had to kind of have the frontend and the backend being able to talk to the same thing as all of these, you know, bits and pieces are being developed. And then testing was, was another, you know, complex thing because it was largely manual when you were testing, you know, you were writing and testing the, the backend and the frontend in isolation. But then when it came to kind of marrying the two up, you had to jerry-rig the whole thing into like another environment sure. so that they were both running so that you could test you know the whole thing in in you know as one piece yeah so there was that complication on top of you know an older an older implementation you know so there was some tech debt and whatnot in there so probably about i want to say six months we've been working on it probably about december last year we kind of decided that we were going to go down this path of rebuilding the application using inertia and view and laravel so we could kind of marry it all up it gives us you know a single place for all of the routing it it sort of enables you to do more comprehensive testing end-to-end where you can use you know dust to do all your browser-based stuff sure. but you can also use you know your your inertia testing uh, functionality to do your test of the inertia components in isolation or you can you know do the back end and all that kind of stuff so there was there's a whole heap of benefits to doing it that way and so, you know, we'd built a number of components like this and, you know, we'd started rebuilding the application in this manner. And it came to the point where we needed to kind of ship some views for this application into Big Brother, like the company that we merged with, into their CRM okay. so that you could get a snapshot of the financial applications that you had built that that were in our platform 
within like that single interface. And so, you know, we had to build components that looked like they fit in the CRM, but they were obviously iframed out. And there was, you know, the complication of authentication and then there's all of the CSP and, you know, JavaScript sort of security around all of that to get it in there. And what we kind of landed on in the last couple of weeks is that now that we spent six months building all of that stuff, we're going to scrap it. Oh, no. (laughs) And what we're going to end up doing is moving not only away from inertia, but also moving away from Vue and redoing all of this stuff in React. Okay where we would build like these vertical slices of the application and like ShapeUp talks about these vertical slices where you build like a complete feature where everything works from top to bottom and you can just ship that. But we're going to build these like micro front ends and we're going to use this stuff called um, module federation where we basically build this whole thing and we ship the React component to the, the CRM and they kind of just mount it within their own, you know, frame. And so we're building stuff and we can then iPhone ship on frame, our do you own mean like iframe? No, I mean frame as in like this section of the page. Okay. So we literally say, you know, we publish a, a JavaScript module basically and we give it to them and they just okay. like include it in their page wherever they see fit. Mm-hmm. And so that gives us the ability to build and develop and deploy at our own cadence separate to their own. But it means that, like they don't have, we don't have to wait for them to deploy or anything like that. We can build our own stuff. So these, it's it's like microservices, but the front end is the most simplistic way that I can come up with it. And I'll, I'll include some links in the show notes. And now, how do those front end components communicate, or don't? Well, they? the front end compu- compu- like with each other. Yeah, is that what you're getting? Or is it just they share a common database? Obviously, so it's like they can talk back and forth. I that mean, way, we or? would build like a, f- we would build like the outer component, and things would would be in there. So, you know, within their navigation, you would click like the, the link to go to our thing. And then we would have effectively load the whole thing as like, however we want it to render. And we could have, you know, multiple components in there that all, you know, work with each other. And there's, you know, we're looking at a couple of different approaches to that and how we want to go about that. But there's now, you know, kicked off a whole bunch of conversations around, well, you know, we were going to scrap the the API and go down this inertia path, but it sounds like we're going to go back the other way. And now looking at probably not JSON API because the in the context of what we're doing, it doesn't make sense like to be able to modify and view and, you know, all of that kind of stuff on a resource by resource basis. Okay. We kind of want to be able to do this as like features or actions, you know kind of complete units of work as opposed to kind of individual resources. Like you're not going to go and update. It's more like what's the job we're trying to accomplish here, right? And then like, okay, do all the things necessary to make that job happen. Yeah. Yeah. So you're going to add like a person and you're going to add an expense to that person kind of thing, but you're not like, so, and then we would have, I don't know, I don't know what the URL structure for this looks like at all. We've just started the, the early conversations, but you'd be like, you would have an action on the back end however that's exposed, called like add expense to user or person or, you know, add asset to person, add liability to asset, add expense to liability, like all of that kind of stuff where, you know, it almost feels like we're building this RPC-esque kind of service where you just like send a whole bunch of actions there. So I don't... It's very early days, you know, trying to get an understanding of, of what this all looks like and how we're going to go about it. And then there's this other conversation that kind of 
read its head that looks a bit like, do we now, because we're dealing with financial data, do we start looking at some kind of event sourcing based system? You know, is that where we want to go? Do we want, you know, for audit and, you know, transaction history and all of this kind of stuff, you know, do we want to kind of look at that now as well? So there's, there's all these conversations that are kind of going on and don't know at this stage where they're going to land or when they're going to land. It's just, you know, we, we kind of, we might take a few different approaches. Yeah, you feel like the, some of these decisions have to be made before you start going in on some of the other stuff. Like, you know, are you going to use event sourcing? And if you are, well, that's going to affect how you're going to architect this thing. But at the same time, like you just did six months of work and then scrapped it. So, I mean, you don't necessarily have to have it all decided up front, I suppose. It's like you could start down right. a path yeah. and then you just don't want to, you just don't want to be rewriting the whole thing every six months sort of deal, you know? But yeah. man, doesn't it feel like, yeah. I mean, if you've, if you've developed an application for any a significant amount of time, these are the sorts of things that developers that are coming in after you just scratch their heads and say, what were these morons thinking when they decided this? And it's like they have no context for yeah. all of the thought and effort that went into the decision-making process. You know what I mean? Right. But like yeah. you just get into this weird thing. So like we we have a similar situation where I'm going through like three levels of iframes right now. So like I have our Wilbur Pay and our Wilbur Pay then talks to our card gateway and our card gateway communicates with our payment vision API, which then tokenizes card information and sends it back to card gateway, which sends it back to Wilbur Pay. And now we're embedding Wilbur Pay inside of our core application. So we have core, embedding Wilbur Pay, embedding payment. You know, it's, it's just like you have three of the things, but it's like, well, all the logic, all the logic for communicating with anybody that's a claimant outside of our organization is tied up, wrapped up inside of this Wilbur Pay application. So if I ever want to send a text, if I ever want to send an email, all of that has to happen there because that's where all the records live. Mm-hmm. And that's where all the authorizations in order to send emails and the double opt-in in order to send text messages, they all live there. Why would I make API calls to and from that when I can just be in that application? But in order to be in that application, I have to iframe it, right? And so... yeah. And then you have to build a second authenticator because like it's typically built for people who are coming in to make a payment. But now I'm building it for our people to make payments on behalf of people who normally log in. So it's like these are those weird things where it's just like, again, you know, it you just you have it built in a certain way. And it's not that you can't scrap it and start over. It's just it's not always the most efficient way to do it. So you end up with some of these little yeah. things that are a little bit janky. Like, you know, kind of how it works, though. You, I mean, it's like, I know how it works. And it does work fine. It's just that people coming mm-hmm. behind. It's like you have to have really good documentation. Yeah. Or you're the only one who gets to work on it for forever from now on. And it's like, mm-hmm. you don't want that either. Yeah. So yeah. And the I mean, the other thing is that we're not actually going to scrap the the inertia stuff that we've already built. We're just not going to write any more using inertia, and we're not going to like rewrite that stuff that we've already built either. So it's all a uh, yeah. I, I don't know where we're going to land, but this is very these initial conversations that are kind of like okay, well, given what we know now, and and you know the thing is what we knew six months ago was yeah, we're going to build it in this way, and it's going to be wonderful. And now we're kind of looking at it, going, hmm, we're going to have to do something completely different. Yeah. So. Yep. Be interesting. That's to see, kind of the nature you know, of where it. we kind yeah. of land on it. Yep, that's cool. Well, good luck yeah. on that. Yeah, it's it's interesting. It is interesting. I don't, I don't know. Mm. I was I was actually looking at um, like speaking of APIs, Postman is a great API tool. Uh, do you guys ever use that to kind of explore API? No, Denver, you don't ever use Postman. I have a strong dislike 
the post. Mm, tell and me. I can tell you why. Yeah, I want to hear it. But I'm <laughs> so all of our quote unquote testing before I started okay. was in the form of postman collections. Oh yeah. If okay. something didn't work, you would get sent like a postman thing that you would import and you would run it and see what it was doing. And and so it took a long time. We've we've spoken on the show, you know, I spent three months building test automation for our platform so that we didn't have to do this. But it took a long time, even after those tests were there, to get people to stop sending me postman collections for things that weren't working. You know, I don't ever want to install postman on my computer. I don't want to hit this API manually to see what the production API is doing. I want you to write me a test that says this thing doesn't work the way that it should and what it should look like and then go and fix that test, mm-hmm. you know, make that test pass. So I I do know, you know, where you're going with this is is different tangent, but I don't like Postman because of what it has enabled and the, the scarring that I, <laughs> the mental it's scars a, I have as a result of it. Yeah, no, that's a really good point. Um, these are things that I've not experienced because we've only ever used it really for exploratory stuff this is not necessarily yeah. i mean some of it we have some of our own apis that we uh have wired up inside of postman but typically we just use those for there There will be like hey we push a new feature on this one particular one and there's really no simple way to test it in production apart from using this postman one because never this one runs on iis mm-hmm. and it's running some funky version of like some java sdk and it's com objects inside of php and so it's sort of like eh most of the time, like if I'm making a change, it's probably not major. It's practically feature complete. Right. But I ever every time I push something up there, I just there's like three endpoints I hit. I'm just like, does that work? Does that work? Does that work? Yep, we're all set. You know, we're good to go. You know, it's just a quick like sort of mm-hmm. smoke test on it. Um, but then there are other APIs where I know I can get it to work, use it because they like either they ship a postman collection to you, or there's really good documentation around this one soap API that we use. And instead of hooking it all up mm-hmm. inside my PHP code, I can literally copy and paste the the SOAP XML that they have in their documentation and modify a couple of values and see if it works. And if it works, then it's like, mm-hmm. great, here's the response I'm going to get back. And then I can start getting to work on some of my some of my actual code, right? But we don't actually yeah. have ever we don't have endpoints for the SDK in our code wired up for all the different endpoints they have available in their documentation. Uh, so some yeah. of it we just kind of use to sort of we're spelunking sort of exploring around mm-hmm. the inside of this mm-hmm. cave and just trying to figure out what it looks like, what the responses look like and all that stuff. Yeah. Yeah, I do like it in that context for exploring other people's APIs. And like it, it seems to be a fairly common thing to, to be able to do that. I use Insomnia uh, rather than Postman itself. Okay. Just, be, uh, just yeah. because it like it it feels quicker. Like Postman always feels very clunky and then they made it like you have to have an account now. Yeah, it's true. Which is a bit... It's a bit janky, but a lot of a lot of the integrations that we're building, they will have either Swagger Docs or they will have like Hosted Docs or they'll have the Postman collection that they send you. Um, when we have Swagger Docs, I like to use Stoplight Studio, which I mean, the same as Postman that now has like you have to create an account and you have to log into this desktop application, but it does have very nice rendering of docs and it makes it easier to kind of consume that information. So we can, you know, the... The in the company that we're integrating with, they'll send us the the swagger. We can then throw it into Stoplight Studio, and then it will give us you know all of the docs, and it will show you know these are the required fields. These are 
all of the enums and all of that kind of stuff, which makes it really nice to to kind of consume before you get down and start writing any code. You want to uh, you want to yeah. educate me on a couple of things real quick? Sure, I can try. Okay, I can always try. You mentioned Swagger, and you've also mm-hmm. mentioned JSON API. Can you explain to me how those two things relate and what Stoplight, how Stoplight Studio kind of fits into this puzzle? So let's let's like talk about Swagger and JSON API first. Let's start. Maybe we start with JSON mm-hmm. API. So JSON API is the current kind of specification i suppose the the predominant specification for building json apis so there's we'll, we'll link it up in the show notes it's um jsonapi.org and it kind of talks about how you would structure your json payloads based on you know objects that there needs to be certain things defined in there so does this define the request and the responses for each endpoint yeah or is this so what yes is, is this yes, it like, kind of yeah json api typically talks about the the way that you would is it always oh, is careful, it always related to your responses as i'm looking at it, it says your json responses always, should be formatted stop bike shedding right which is like this idea of like right. spending forever trying to figure out how to do it and it's like just use this as the as the standard right this is how we're going to do it these shared yeah. this set of shared conventions for the for yeah for the responses there's also like json schema which is the other thing that we may as well throw okay, in there so while we're JSON talking API, about JSON, JSON schema. Schema. Um, schema is kind of how you would annotate and ensure that your documents are valid that you're sending back. And there's, you know, these these things kind of document the objects themselves that you can have um, in your in your JSON responses. And then Swagger is Swagger is now not a thing, right? Swagger became something else, uh, which became Open API. Which is the open API specification, which is which is another thing as well. So sorry, just to, to clarify here. We have JSON API. And if we're looking at JSON API, this to me so it's it's advertised as a specification for building APIs in JSON. Uh, so it's a it it's specifically they say uh, JSON responses, responses should be formatted. So this should help you stop fighting with your team about what it should look like and adhere to a set of shared conventions um, that allow you to increase productivity, take advantage of generalized tooling and best practices. Okay, so it has things like uh, links to like the next set of pages, right? If you have paginated resources, right? You have links, self, next, and last. Then you have the data. Then you have values that are included, uh, et cetera, et cetera. So like, okay, it's it's... Whatever. It looks to me, it looks to me, this one looks like it is for responses, but not necessarily for requests. Does it sound right. reasonable to say that JSON API is concerning itself with how to format JSON responses? Yes. Okay. Um, so open okay. JSON API is more around a standard structure for for the APIs. So if so JSON API says like it has to look like this, where you've you know you have a type attribute and you have an id attribute and you have like then an object of attributes that contains you know things like first name last name email address whatever right so json api describes is the standard around what that structure is of what you must include json's schema kind of allows you to then document and enforce that structure and it allows you to do you know your smoke testing uh, your your contract testing and, and things like that to make sure that like when you're 
when you send back something that these attributes are all going to be there and they're going to be, you know, the first name is going to be a string and last name is going to be a string and middle name is going to be a string, but it could be null because not everyone's got a middle name. You know, email address must conform to a certain standard, you know, all that kind of stuff. So JSON's schema allows you to kind of do that. JSON API encapsulates all of those little individual schema pieces. Hmm. So JSON... We'll, we'll link to some... Yeah, I'm, I'm reading on it right stuff. now. I'm reading on it right now, right? Uh, annotate and validate JSON documents based on schema data formats that you set up beforehand. Mm-hmm. Is that what you, you'd say on that? So you you basically yeah. sort of, you know... If- so JSON schema would take kind of your database... Say you've got a... a you've, you've written your migration, right? For let's say the users table, and okay. the users table has name, email address, okay. date of birth, place of birth, okay, right? sure, all things, yep, sure, right. So that's your database migration. JSON, JSON API simply says that for your API, when you return the response, it will have type of person, ID will be a number that signifies, you know, one is Jake, two is Michael, and then attributes that says like this is where the attributes fall, and the attributes can be anything. So we would then use JSON schema to define what those attributes are. Okay. And they would kind of closely closely align with, you know, the database column types in this specific example. So you'd have name would be a string. It's required. Um, email address is a string. It's required. And it will be of a type email. Date of birth is a string, uh, is a date, and it must be in the format year, 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 month, month, day, day. Okay. Um, and place of birth is a string, but it's optional. We don't necessarily care where you were born. We just need to know when you were born because we need to know, you know, for date of birth kind of thing. Okay. Um, so JSON schema would then say, this is what those attributes would be. And you would then, so is it almost like a TypeScript sort of thing? You know what I mean? For like, for your API? No, no, no. Well, it's kind of there to validate the structure of that JSON. That makes sense. Yeah. Right. To make sure that like, you know, that attribute that is for a person is structured in the correct way. And there's like, I've seen it in the past where there's like this directory of them where you could just say, you know, if you're modeling common things, places, uh, phone numbers, you might have like, you can just use these these things that are like off the shelf and just say like, this is a phone number and this is what that looks it's like. The and typical you can just schema go you should follow when you're returning a phone number sort of. Yeah, thing. okay. Right, so you can kind of just fetch that. Has, so has libraries... Or suggestions of predefined schema types. Okay, so then the question for me on the JSON schema is that for you as the developer to ensure that your responses are adhering to a schema, or is it to deliver to your API consumers to give them confidence that they could program to like this interface essentially and know that your place of birth is always going to be required and it's going to be a string or it's optional? And it's going to be a string if it comes back, right? It's, so who is it for? Is it for you, the developer, to say to be able to run your APIs internally up against this JSON schema and say, no, 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 somebody changed the code. It's not adhering to the schema anymore. Or is it for your clients to give them confidence that when they're when they're writing something against your API, that they know what's going on? Or is it for both? I would I would say it's for both. Okay, you know, um, TJ TJ Miller has a package out there that's like. Laravel JSON schema assertions or something like that, which I'll put a link to in the show notes. And essentially what it is, is you take your schema documents, you take your API endpoint and you like hit that API endpoint and you say that the response that comes back from the API endpoint must match the schema as defined, you know, in this schema file. Okay. And then so 
open API and JSON schema are two kind of different specifications that are very similar and have okay. inspired each other. And, the, and open and API, to open be clear, API, Swagger is what open API used to be. Swagger okay. became open API. That's right. Yeah. Um, so open API kind of tries to describe this, the service, you know, the API itself, the endpoints, metadata around headers and authentication, as well as kind of the request and response. And JSON schema aims to describe an instance, like a single instance of that JSON data. So like a single response. Which is like your, right, well, the, well the, you know, the person response or the whatever, yeah. Okay. So I think that's, you know, where some of most of the confusion, like if I mean, you're not it in is. these I, things literally, I've heard day, of these things for years and I don't even know, you know, yeah. it's like, it's just been like one of those things I'm like, eh, I'll dig into it eventually. If you're not using these things all day, every day, it's quite easy to say, you know, Open API, JSON API, and JSON schema are three competing standards for the same thing. That they're, they're, you know, all kind of go hand in hand. Open API and JSON API kind of competing similar-ish things. JSON schema can be used with each to kind of define what those things are. We'll, we'll put some links in the show notes, and then you know you can sound off on on uh, X and tell us all the ways that that we were wrong because like it is confusing. So if you had to sort of pick one, right? Like is open API seem like the most fully fleshed out. Like if you were going to decide, Hey, we are going to document a JSON API, right? A restful JSON API that we're providing to some customers. You would use, you could use open API in order to say, okay, we're going to define with this. This is how you authenticate. This is all the requests. These are the responses you should be able to expect. And then if you wanted to, in addition, you could also provide a JSON schema, which says when you get back a user from us, this is the particular structure you can expect to get that user back in. Yeah. I think open API kind of allows you to craft your own and like you would stick to it. Whereas JSON API says, you know, this is the structure of what it should always look like. So, you know, if I go to the Wilbur one or I go to the Google JSON API or I go to, um, you know, the meetup.com JSON API or yeah. the Twitter JSON API, yeah. like they all have a very similar structure. Mm-hmm. But if you're getting into more bespoke things and you, you know, doing your own things, you might use open API to kind of describe those things, knowing that you've kind of got a bit of flexibility and what they look like. Yeah. Okay, cool. Whereas like with JSON API, the structure is always the same yeah and laravel news actually has some stuff like introduction to the json api you've got building rest apis with laravel i mean you literally got all of these you know that dream factory open source api platform uh we've been talking about a bunch of these recently actually those ones that you know automatically document and everything for you like and then kick it over to this like interactive documentation page and all that stuff i don't know there's all sorts of stuff with yeah. these as well. So I've not had to build really a, we've got, we've got APIs that return JSON and all that stuff, but typically yeah. we're the only ones using it. So we can be kind of light on the documentation mm-hmm. because it's just us. And so it's not the end of the world, mm-hmm. but we're going to be starting to build an application in the very near future here. That is not going to be that way. It's going to be widely adopted by a group a group of people and we need to have really good documentation and really good consistency around how we actually deliver that API and the responses. So I'm interested in learning a little bit more about this. I suppose like would would um, TJ Miller be the guy to talk to about this? Yeah, I think so. Do we have him on I the show next time? Uh, he's talking about doing some podcasting. I mean, don't ask me. Ask, ask TJ. Right, TJ is <laughs> coming in. Here we go. 
All right, TJ, I'm going to ask you, buddy. Um, yeah, so let's um, plan on yeah, having TJ think, on next time to clarify some of this stuff. All right, that would be good. But yeah, I think, the, I mean, the tricky thing with a lot of this stuff is it is often, you know, as developers, it's documentation after. And so what that typically means is the documentation gets out of sync. And then using using something like JSON schema and JSON schema assertions, the, the package that TJ wrote, means that you kind of enforce this. You can't, you won't have someone just introduce a new database column because the the contract test against that schema will fail because you know the schema says you can't just add an extra thing here like that's not allowed you'd have to actually go and update that schema document which means that your documentation keeps in step with your actual implementation the the number of times that we've you know got documentations from these third parties and they you know, there's there's enums that are listed in there that don't exist in their live implementation or they've, you know, you're not sending the right thing. I say, well, show me on the documentation where this comes from and they go, oh, hang on, that's, you know, an older version of the documentation or whatever. So, you know, it's a thing that happens everywhere. I don't think I've ever seen uh, a JSON API, API actually implemented to the spec or it's not actually followed its own documentation. Like there's always something, you know, and we're all busy uh, developers we're just trying to ship features to users and sometimes documentation especially i get the feeling through all of these integrations that we've done this year that a lot of them don't get used a lot oh, no. <laughs> and so the fact that things the the fact that you know these apis kind of are out of sync with production means that you know they they don't get checked because you know i assume what is happening is they're making some changes for themselves, these companies, because, you know, they, they're the, the primary consumer of their API. So they make some change in their API to suit their front ends or their application or internal applications or whatever. Don't update the documentation that, you know, other people are potentially consuming that API. And so these, these are how things get out of sync a little bit. So I think it's um, something that just happens everywhere unless you're really laser focused. You know, if, if everyone had a, had a, well, Phil Sturgeon is, planting trees and and buying plots of land in the in the british countryside but um you know when he was when he was solely focused on apis you know, APIs you've got you someone hate, that is, right? build apis you won't hate yeah unless you've got someone that is dedicated and solely laser focused on that that aspect of it, it you know i i don't know anyone in any business that's kept it up to date personally so hmm. there it is well on that note, let's uh, wrap things up. Next, uh, in two weeks, we're going to have TJ Miller on to talk about all this stuff, and he will provide some uh, good feedback on what we've talked about here, as well as I'm going to look through all these different uh, Laravel news links, like generate APIs with ease with Laravel REST API, Laravel API toolkit, generate saloon SDKs from Postman or open API collections. So we're gonna I'm going to look up all these things. I'm going to get a little more educated on this. This is something I'm going to need to know in the near future here. And we will talk about it in a few weeks. So if that sounds interesting to you, come back in two weeks and we'd love to have you for show 145. This was show 144. Find show notes for it at northmeetsouth.audio slash 144. Hit us up on Twitter at Michael Dorinda at Jacob Bennett or at North South Audio. Rate us up in your podcast of choice. Five stars would be amazing. We love you. We are so glad to have you listening and uh, we'd love to hear from you. All right, everybody. Yeah. Until next time. See you. Bye.